Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories podcast by Village Global. I'm joined here by Hans Gangiskar, co-founder of Nurex, and Carolyn Witte, co-founder of Tia. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Great to be here. Thank you. Hans, start and tell us briefly, what is Nurex? So Nurex is a telemedicine service, and we started off by offering an integrated end-to-end service for providing birth control, where women can request birth control in the Nurex app or at the Nurex website. And we provide an e-consultation via structured asynchronous interaction, meaning that you fill out a survey and answer some questions and upload a picture of yourself. A doctor looks at it, prescribes your birth control, and it gets shipped out from one of our partner pharmacies. We take care of insurance. We take care of all the interplay between pharmacy and doctor. And the whole experience is much, much simplified compared to one in the doctor's office and the potential for judgment and the potential for sort of getting lost between the cogs and the medical system is virtually non-existent compared to a traditional office setting. We now also offer an HIV prevention service and STI testing in the mail and are branching out. Cool. Carolyn, can you tell us about Tia? Sure. Tia is a full-stack women's healthcare company that builds products, tools, and soon services designed to help every woman be her own patient advocate. Um, we started with a, a personal private women's health advisor. Think of it like personalized WebMD for women's health that you chat with, all with Tia as sort of a character, if you will, sort of it's emblematic of your best friend who's in med school, sort of how our users talk about her. Um, and you can message with her about all sorts of reproductive and sexual health care questions and get personalized answers in real time um, designed to help you make independent informed decisions for yourself. And we're in the process of evolving to a more of a full stack model where we not only provide information pre post clinical services, if you will, but actually provide end to end services with TIA as that connective tissue throughout your care experience. Cool. So one of the things we want to get into is uh, different business models in consumer healthcare. And you guys have chosen slightly different different paths. You, you, Carolyn, you started with digital product, now also adding on more services. Talk about how your thinking has evolved in terms of why that why that's important to you guys. Sure. So my background, a little bit about me and how I got into this, I think sort of speaks to the, the initial starting place where Tia came from Google, spent a lot of time working on search and the Google system, chat-based interfaces, and um, set out really to solve what I believe is um, an information problem in women's health. And there's a plethora of information out there, obviously on the internet, but people are, it's really difficult for women to figure out what's legit, of course, you know, the Googling your health sort of classic symptom that everyone deals with. Um, But also what um, we talk about is like an EQ problem in healthcare, um, which particularly makes things decisions around sex and reproductive health, which are highly emotive for many women, very difficult when the care experiences and also information and is very fragmented, disjointed and sort of lacks that EQ to help women make decisions from a place of confidence instead of one of shame, anxiety, confusion, also the feelings that tend to dominate women's healthcare. And so started by saying, like, we need to solve this information problem first and foremost. Um, We talk a lot about choice as like our core ethos of TIA. We never make decisions for women, but instead uh, build products that help women make decisions for themselves. And to do that starts with an information problem. But as we sort of ventured into the space, it was like an onion, we're just peeling back layer by layer and sort of realized how couldn't really solve, really change the way care was delivered and help women actually get better care, which is really our mission, uh, unless we were able to 
impact the way they were served to women themselves. Instead, to us, like the real opportunity was actually integrating this, or sort of extending rather, the trusted relationship women have with Tia today into the world of real world healthcare services, which we believe is like a totally underserved market and one that's super threatened by sort of the socio-political zeitgeist of today and one that is in need of a a new model of care um, designed specifically with the female consumer in mind. And is this part of a trend of like, we're seeing like one medical for X where you sort of you know, verticalized brick and mortar against specific diseases? Yeah. And the simplest, uh, I would say, comp for what we're doing is, you know, a one medical for women's health. We talk about building a one-stop shop, really intending to solve the fragmentation we see in healthcare with, you know, zillion different services, trackers, information platforms, care providers, none of whom talk to each other. And what we found in early days of TIA is that sort of women want someone, not something to manage their health. They want one place to go, not 10. Um, and they want, you know, they have to see just the differences between women and and the male population, women have more doctors, they have more doctor appointments, they actually use healthcare as sort of the running joke that we talk about internally with our investors are like women spend 80% of the healthcare dollars in this country, they actually use healthcare. Why isn't there a model being designed and built specifically for them around their nuanced and specific needs? Um, and so we see this full stock sort of verticalization and healthcare happening in diabetes and chronic illnesses even like musculoskeletal, all these different verticals and hasn't really happened in women's healthcare. Um, and we see Tia having an opportunity to extend those trends and those models that are working in other spaces into women's health. Yeah, we invested in a company that's tagging the musculoskeletal part. Hans, you guys decided not to build brick and mortar as far as I know. Is, is that correct? We don't have any physical locations that patients walk into and, yeah. and we don't have that on the roadmap. We, we think, I think you, you talk about choice. One, one of the things that, that we talk a lot about is a shift in control to the end user because so many of the decisions made in the current healthcare system is that you're, you're being passed between the interests of doctors, of nurses, of payers, of pharmacists, of PBMs, and there's extremely little room for what the patient actually wants. And sort of, I think this, this idea that sort of happened very early on in the stage of Nurex was, was my co-founder Eddie is a doctor and sort of the mortal fear of any doctor these days is a patient going in with like a hundred page printout from WebMD. So doctors get very good at steering conversations. So you come into a doctor's office with a patient wanting to talk about certain things like that conversation is controlled. You don't get to, to choose what to talk about. They're just like steering you out. So they get to, to make room for their next patient. And it leaves a lot of patients with so much follow-up work that there isn't time for often more concerned walking out of the doctor's office than walking in. But, but, sort of even taking one step back when people talk about these experiences, your traditional doctor's office is a black box experience. Like you as a patient, you don't know if the doctor is a nice doctor. You don't know if the doctor is going to judge you for having sex before marriage. And all of that anxiety builds up and it holds a big portion of the the population out of the doctor's office, and especially a lot of young women who have insecurity around that. So, So one of the things that we thought was really important was to create an experience where you can come into it with expectations that will be met and that there's transparency around what's going to be asked of you, what you're going to be provided, and that sort of the doctor is going to ask you the questions that are necessary for the outcome that you're seeking. They're not going to fat shame you, which a lot of doc- patients feel like they end up getting done. Uh, and 
that keeps people again out of the doctor's office. And it means that those patients don't get the care they need because they're just tired of being told that they need to lose weight without being told how, or they're tired of being told to be, stop smoking, but, but no one's really helping them do that. It's just like on the checklist that a lot of EMR systems will just like spew out for the patient. So, so one of the things that's been very important for us is to create a, a comfortable space where patients and doctors can communicate in new ways. And that's sort of one of the things that's made me the most excited in doing this is here from our doctors, how they talk to patients and how patients use language that sort of is much more colloquial when they talk to our doctors when they, than when they talk to doctor, the same doctors in, in their physical offices. So in the future, what, what does a doctor's visit look like and what is the role of a doctor? That's still very much to be determined, but I think one of the ways we talk about it is decoupling it. It's not going to be like a 10-minute thing and then two or three months later or a year later you come in and you get another 10 minutes and the doctor's like reading up on the chart in one minute it'll be decoupled it'll be a continuous experience every time you have a question you'll get an answer there the care plan will be adjusted and it'll be assisted with a lot more than just the doctor's mind to to come up with with things to to help you optimize your health so so i don't we don't think about it as a doctor's visit as much as sort of an ongoing care management Similarly, sort of share a lot of those sentiments and feelings you've heard from users around like the patronizing experience that women especially feel um, in the sort of judginess, if you will, um, from many, many care providers um, and is has been very much sort of the impetus for us to get into the world of delivering real world healthcare service and saying there has to be something different. How do we build a sex positive, non-judgmental model of care that's designed for a young woman that around her needs, her wants and sort of changes the dynamic of this patient-provider relationship. One thing we feel really strongly, though, is that the role of the provider needs to be preserved. And one, um, we talk about TIA, you know, moving from a, today, there's a one-to-one relationship between TIA and the user that's really powerful, and it's all anonymous done through chat. And as a result, people say things to TIA that they never, ever would say out loud to their doctor or anywhere else. And that's sort of the root of trust that we have with women. And then they have their separate relationship, another one-to-one relationship with their doctor or many different doctors. Usually that's far more transactional, far more dishonest, mm-hmm. um, and sort of done out of um, often from a, like, I must get a pass or I guess I'll like succumb myself to go to this mm-hmm. experience versus a, a proactive moment of or women sort of seeing, seeking that relationship as a, a part of like a proactive or empowering moment of their healthcare where they're making informed decisions for their future, whether it's fertility, choosing to get pregnant, not get pregnant, what have you. And we talk about in the world of TIA clinics and TIA care evolving to this triangular relationship where Tia is Tia, the user and the doctor, and Tia is that liaison, that bridge that's helping bridge that gap. There's, you know, Tia takes sort of the work and the, the data collection out of uh, the doctor's hands and does the things that doctors, that computers can do well and preserves the doctor's role for doing the things that we think doctors do well, which is actually counseling and synthesizing information and providing compassionate human-centered care. So we talk a lot about Tia being a bridge and building lots of shared decision-making tools is a thing we're really focused on today to be used in the context of care between patients and providers in tandem to to facilitate a more honest, compassionate, human-centered relationship that really is about empowering the patient to make decisions for themselves, both within that single, you know, once a year, well-woman exam, but as you mentioned, like just as importantly is the 364 other days in the year when you're not in that doctor's office um, and how, you know, technology can be that sort of um, tool that allows continuity of care. You both, you mentioned you know, data collection. I have a sort of broader question, which is, what have you guys found about how user patients use data? Or do they do they even care about their, their data? And like, how do they most effectively use it? And what have you learned or been surprised about that process? So 
I've been very interested or like surprised by the sort of user perceptions or differences in privacy and security and what people are comfortable sort of perceptions of how data is used. So for example, as I mentioned, women, we found women are incredibly trusting and sharing highly, highly intimate personal information with Tia that we take sort of great responsibility in protecting built an anonymous platform solely for the purposes of that and saying things like that they probably would ever would say to a doctor, despite any level of security or HIPAA or what have you, the sort of protocols you put around that data. But what is, I think people feel very strong opinions about is the responses that they get to that data and sort of this person going back to this notion of judgment. How is that? If I, if I give you this, what are you going to do with it? What response am I going to get back from that? Both in terms of like an emotional, like, I just want to feel heard type of response is what we really think, see women want. And then ultimately how are you using that data to deliver me value? Our latest focus is on using, you know, it's give and take. If women give us data about their health, it's our responsibility to turn those into personalized insights that they can use to get healthier and make important decisions and, and building a data platform that's sort of core to our product and care ethos. Coming into this, we were just very concerned that people wouldn't trust us with their data and we're sort of making very sure to communicate that we're sort of HIPAA compliant and talking about encryption. But but sort of having been at this for a few years now, what we've learned is, is that sort of if you communicate that we are asking you only the questions that we need to ask you to, to get to the outcome that you want to get to and that we are sort of providing valuable insights with the data. We've actually been shocked by how willing people are to, to tell us things that we never even asked about and people volunteer things because when you establish that trusted space for, for people to, to get care and you, you sort of get them bought into the fact that like, this is for you, this isn't for for something else, people sort of go the opposite way. And they're like, Oh, I want to make sure I share everything with the doctor. Uh, So so I think that's sort of one of the key things that you have to get right for for a platform like this to work is that that it it builds this trusted space and that the people the patient or the user trusts the people in the platform. And, and I think if, if there's ever one thing we get consistent feedback, it's a, it's about the way the doctors on our platform and the other providers on our platform communicate with the patients and that they love that relationship and they love the trusts and they love that like they're never judged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, It's really about setting up user expectations and managing those expectations correctly. We actually found ourselves in the early days of Tia. We used to have a human in the loop in our product. So it's part machine powered. And depending on what you asked or what you told Tia, you might be routed to a human health educator. Um, And we found ourselves being inundated by people thinking Tia could take their data and do something with it that we weren't set up to do yet. Um, And that actually informed the development of a lot of our more robust cycle and health tracking features that we've recently launched where people would message in and say, hey, Tia, you know, my period just started. I want you to know. Um, and we weren't had any capacity to take that information and do something with it, but they had an expectation that we could use that and then predict something with it. Or I'm experiencing X or here's my insurance information. That's our latest piece of information that shocks me is um, since announcing our Tia Clinic effort, Every day we get DMs on Instagram from people sharing their insurance information with Tia proactively, just so eager for this. And so like, like offering up their information in an unprompted way with the hopes that if we know that, then we're going to be able to offer a service to them in a way that's going to make it accessible. And I think it really speaks to this contract you have to have with your users in terms of if people give you information, you can turn that into something valuable. That's something people trust. Totally. Hans, when you were in Billionaire X, you could have gone a different way in terms of business model. You could, there are lots of other companies doing different types of things or pharmacy on demand. How do, wh- what do you sort of fundamentally believe about where value accrues that has led you to try to be and then telemedicine in terms of all, all the other directions you could have taken next? 
that really just comes from horrible healthcare experiences that, that I've had myself and that everyone we spoke to has. That, that sort of, if there's one thing that comes up as the unequivocally worst part of the US healthcare system, it's the fact that it's so divided. And that no matter how good intended each actor is, everyone eventually ends up having to blame everyone else because you get a bill that you don't recognize and it's a test that your doctor ordered, but the lab coded it wrong and you end up with a thousand dollar bill that should have been zero. But since there are, even in this fairly simple example, three parties that can blame each other, you as the user are stuck being the one who owns all the problems and everybody else gets, like you, you call up your insurance company and they spend five minutes on it. And then it's like, oh no, this is a Quest issue called Quest and they blame your doctor or the insurance company. So, so where it started was sort of us believing that like to change it, we need to change the whole experience. And we need, like, and it's the ultimate trust builder too, because our users know that like if they have an issue with getting their birth control or getting their prep, like, we will take ownership of that issue. And that is such an outlier in the U.S. healthcare system that, that people are just shocked when they find that out. And and sort of to, to take it even further, we're so familiar with the notion of a prescription, but it's really ridiculous. It's a pres- permission slip, right? If you were designing a healthcare system from scratch, like, that wouldn't exist. It's sort of it's arbitrary. As a user, you don't care about that intermediary result. You want to get your care. When it's birth control pills, it's the pills. When it's sort of a broken leg, it's a mended leg. It's not an x-ray. It's not a prescription for painkillers. So so taking on the problems where we could truly own everything was sort of how we decided to get there. And, and sort of a couple other things that we think are very important along the way is that cost is is a major issue in the U.S. healthcare system. Like we see double-digit inflation in most healthcare services year over year. So cost is every year removing access to people uh, from vital healthcare services. So we think that we can deliver a many-fold or many-order of magnitude cost reduction in healthcare services, and and that can be a differentiator in access metrics and can change population-level outcomes. And why has uh, where you know technology? Productivity growth has led to you know reduced costs in almost every other industry. Why and yet healthcare is the opposite. Why why has that happened? I think it comes back to this balkanization a lot that no one's responsible for the overall outcome. So everybody gets to hack the system to to sort of mint more money at it rather than compete on 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 true patient outcomes. Like even with the outcome based billing under the ACA, it hasn't really become something that that drives behavior. It's become an apartment that's that's responsible for filing the paperwork, but it doesn't really change the behavior of providers or pharmacies to, to a big extent yet. Whereas elsewhere in the economy where you go to a company and they deliver you a service and you choose whether you're happy with the service, right. that doesn't happen in healthcare. And you can't drop your insurance because it comes from your, your, your employer and you can only choose once a year. If you had a magic wand and could change anything about healthcare from a governmental or regulatory perspective, what would it be? There's so many things. I, I can't possibly be held, held <laughs> come up with all of that right now. But I, I think that, that if we're comparing the U.S. system with, with other countries, there, there are a lot of simple fixes. And I think universal coverage is one of them. I think sort of doing something to address some of the egregious cost issues in the U.S. healthcare system and some of what I think you can't be described as anything other than rent-seeking that is keeping millions of patients uh, out of reach of of care is important. Personally, I believe that a single-payer system is is really the only way to get even remotely close to that, but maybe there's another good solution. It's a tough question. I think 
one of the issues um, we're really interested in solving or partnering with people to solve is is the issue of price transparency and the fact that you don't know what pay, you know don't know how much your healthcare is going to cost before you go. Um, the T clinics are focused on offering sort of covered preventive health ser- services that are 100% covered for all women everywhere in the U.S. without copay by law under the ACA. So we're talking well women exams, STI tests, birth control, IUD insertions, those types of things. Um, but even the cost of care for like the misinformation and confusion around the cost of care versus say how much an IUD costs or why someone might get a bill for $1,000 when it's supposed to be 100% covered by mm-hmm. law is incredibly complex for anyone to to even the most informed patient to really struggle to navigate. Um, and so tools wise sort of solidifying the different, you know, mentioned all these different payers, providers, you know, employers, all the different players in this complex system make it incredibly hard to even know who to go to. Um, and even, and it makes it to, to sort of fight a bill. But um, ultimately I think it takes away agency from the consumer or the woman to make an informed decision for herself and know how to get care that's affordable to her and know what her rights are. And that's one of the things we seek to solve by, um, sort of integrating our um, information and sort of these patient advocate tools, price transparency tools that we're building into the context of our actual care experience and helping women make informed decisions before they go and end up with a bill in the mail. Yeah. Price transparency is one of our biggest challenges, both on a sort of business development and, and agreements level, on an engineering, on a technical level, on a presenting it to the user when we know and when we don't know. It's It's just... Such a big challenge, the way the healthcare system is So hard. Then, you know, just projecting how much we're going to get paid for a pap smear is insane. It's like the the, the delta between pairs that in states and every other, you know, variable you throw into that makes it very hard to build a model that is really designed with the patient in mind. When the variability there in, it, in just how much you're going to get paid for a simple service that is supposed to be 100% covered is, mm-hmm. is, is very hard to predict. We're starting to see a lot, or I'm starting to see a lot of uh, sort of Nurex for X, like HIMS, uh, right out of dysfunction. One of our companies, Brightside, uh, uh, for uh, mental health antidepressants. How do you think about for people out there looking to build, you know, direct to consumer healthcare businesses, verticals that that might work or verticals that might not work? Like, how would you advise or think about? Ultimately, we we started with birth control because we identified a huge portion of the population that had that as their only real healthcare need so that we could basically take care of all their healthcare needs with that. And sort of our roadmap is, is based on meeting more and more healthcare needs of that demographic that they can take care of with structured asynchronous telemedicine. So I think that's ultimately the important thing to think about. Like Nurex for travel meds might work if you can charge enough but it's not going to be a huge thing because it's a one-off sporadic and it definitely isn't every medical need you have unless you're a 21 year college graduate right. who's going on their gap year. Yeah. <laughs> you guys talk both a lot about uh, design sort of the optimal medical experience. Like, you know, you uh, own it. Walk me, paint more of a picture of what that looks like and how it's different from today. So we have developed um pretty specific, we call it more of a care philosophy than a specific practice of medicine. We're calling cycle connected care, which is taking all the data that women self-report or track into our TIA app. So think everything from period data to cramps to wellness, sleep, exercise, medications, birth control, 
and bringing, taking that data, this longitudinal data, sharing that with TU providers and bringing that to life in a clinical context. Um, the real need there is to shift from sort of treating women based off a snapshot moment in time to a longitudinal, more holistic context and having um, be able to deliver more integrated, personalized care to women with all these different factors in mind. And so that's really our sort of care philosophy that's very distinct in what makes TIA getting a Wellman exam at the TIA clinic dis- different from a One Medical or a Planned Parenthood or any other gynecologist. Um, and it's about really uh, multiple tools in the toolkit approach and really building just as importantly as it is to build tools for patients is it to build tools for doctors that allow them to utilize that data in a really highly, highly usable. We talk about um, usable. We talk about the word glanceable. I mean, from a design perspective, is so the way we design and build our tools. We're spending a lot of time shadowing and um, working alongside our chief medical officer and how, in, in terms of the development of this tool to figure out how it's actually used in that 15-minute appointment. Because at the end of the day, there's if anything, too much data in healthcare. And the real challenge is how do you get data to actually be useful? And that's sort of the problem um, that we've been accessing over both on the patient side and the provider side and, and saying, ultimately, how do you take this data that's fragmented, design a tool that makes it useful or makes it ingestible, if you will, and then bring it to life in the care context um, and not in, keep it in the silos. You had, going back to the fact that you guys chose slightly different business models, but are focusing on a similar population, implies that you've a slightly different thesis on either the present or future of of how healthcare is going to be delivered or where value accrues. Walk me through sort of what the crux of, of that difference is. So I'd say like our tagline these days is you can't get a pap smear on the internet. Um, so I think there's nothing, it's not like a, a world difference in worldview from my perspective of like, you know, brick and mortar versus telehealth. Um, or tech versus, you know, real world providers or, or asynchronous communication. We have all of that um, in our care model and our pro- or sort of TIA app today, but really around for us, a focus on a core service that every woman needs every year that hasn't been invited on in centuries that is universally hated um, and is 100% covered by all insurance plans in the country. That's why we're focused on it and no one else is at a time when brick and mortar women's health centers are being defunded. There's a shortage of gynecologists in the country. There's wait lists in cities like San Francisco and New York to get a pap smear. It's super hard to get a, a core preventive health service. And so we feel that that core um, exam and then the related sort of women's health and needs sort of that's our wedge into the market and saying like that's an opportunity to build trust that's an opportunity to like the most intimate experience you possibly could have with a doctor and is a way that we can um, build a differentiated experience that's connected and sort of powered by tia technology um but are really like piggybacking on a lot of the um sort of innovations that have happened on the telehealth side and the broader sort of digital health space the past, you know, five years or so that really enable us to take a lot of those learnings and best practices and and bring those to life in our, you know, full stack model. One of the key things of what we think about is, is control and never sort of denying patient care because they're refusing to do something. So sort of the classical thing that comes up for us is sort of what about the pap smear, as you mentioned. And, and or an it, IUD. Yeah, but the IUDs obviously can't do in a virtual setting, but right. the pap smear is important for screening for cervical cancer, but a woman who hasn't had a pap smear is not better off being pregnant. So, mm-hmm. so we need to take a much more sort of holistical, practical view of let's do what's right by the patient. Let's not withhold care from the patient to force them to do something else. Because there are such deep paternalistic roots in medicine of sort of using really knee-jerk 
tools to force patients into doing something. So one of the ways we obviously recommend that our, our patients go get their pap smears as, as often as they should, but, but sort of other things we're looking at is can we do HPV testing at home to sort of get a better idea mm-hmm. for the risk and sort of for the people who who are in the in the right age cohort and haven't had a pap smear and are also H- positive for the high-risk HPV strains, we can like really say, like, look, like, you, you really need to get this pap smear. And sort of being able to take a much more practical approach to use the tools that are available and use the tools that the individual patients is willing to use and, and to sort of not shame people into doing something particular. What's it like to build a women's healthcare company in the age of Trump, age of Me Too, in the age of 2018? You've been around this longer than I have. <laughs> well, we got a lot of press out of it, yeah. for sure. Uh, so, so it gave us a lot of attention. I think on the ground when it comes to like the ACA and paying and, and sort of the, the real big wheels in the cog, we haven't really seen the, the sea change that, that we fear might be coming. But it's one of the things that I often think about is like the hostile landscape that it creates. So we get patients talking about really poor experiences in doctor's office. And I think the the sort of dialogue and the conversation that's created by the Trump presidency and the Trump machine makes individual doctors and people in the system empowered to say really nasty things and do really nasty things that, that under the Obama administration, they would feel would have consequences and they wouldn't be able to get away mm-hmm. with. And I think we have a lot of patients that are suffering the consequences of that. And it can't be quantified. And it's much harder to really describe the grave and negative consequences of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I started Tia about three months or so before the election. And when I thought the world was going one way and it went another way. And as a, like at the time, a solo founder working on this, like in my dining room was like, woke up totally shocked of like, I thought I was building one thing when that was riding one wave. And it turns out to be just this totally different thing. And it really, uh, you know, forced me to look in the mirror and say, what are you building? Like, what is the purpose of this? Can this exist? Like, what are the laws that are going to change all that sorts of crazy stuff? But for me, it, it really just gave me much more purpose in terms of what we're doing. I imagine you feel that way all the time. I'm um, filling a void both from an information like, you know, all that things that are happening on abstinence only education in this country are completely insane right now. Um, and the way people are turning to platforms like Tia to get, you know, personalized evidence-based information at a time when the misinformation out there is worse than like under any, you know, Republican administration in history and sort of, you know, Planned Parenthood's for closing the need to fill, you know, use telemedicine to help fill access gaps and help people sort of get access to critical things like birth control is greater than ever. And so for me, it's really about thinking about how we constantly think about access and helping, you know, all women um, in mind as we build a new model of care that we see, we think, you know, the, the need for new service models, business models at a time when the current models are threatened is is greater than ever and is, is definitely, I think, motivating for, for me and my team as um, uh, people, and I imagine the same, working working in this space. To wrap, there are a lot of listeners who are looking to build companies in the space. You came not from healthcare, also not from healthcare, lawyer? Uh, I'm an attorney and a computer engineer. Before starting Nurex, I was at a, a DNA and microbiome testing company called Ubiome, so I, I sort of had some experience there. Uh, my co-founder Eddie is a medical doctor, yeah. but uh, I sort of never imagined even right. five years ago that I would be working in healthcare. Uh, so, for, for a lot of sort of you know, strong entrepreneurs out there who don't have domain expertise, what's uh, what's your advice to them as they embark on this journey of building a company in space? I think it's a delicate balance of 
sort of preserving your naivete in a certain way. And like that fresh perspective is incredibly valuable and allows you to sort of come up with crazy ideas that other, you know, incumbents, if you will, would like never, ever think to, to raise and, and say like, why shouldn't this exist? And just really, rather than saying here, you know, always coming at problems with here, the 10, you know, institutional players or re- reasons why this thing isn't going to exist, just come up with an idea that actually has the consumer in mind. So it's, it's very freeing in that way. But that, of course, has to be balanced with you know, finding people who really do have that expertise, subject matter expertise to really help refine and, and play that, play that delicate balance. We sort of talk about move fast and break things doesn't work in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like move fast and shake things up. Um, and you need to like find that balance and find sort of have a mix of um, a, both t- you know, in terms of your the people you hire and advisors and investors that can help sort of help you preserve that sacred bubble of, um, you know, idea generation allows you to see things that others might not while having the sort of wherewithal to help actually execute those. And that really requires understanding the limitations and all the various factors in, in like the most complicated industry in the country. I think that's one of the the key challenges in building teams in healthcare is having enough domain experience, having enough people who come at it with energy to, to change it up and facilitating those people working together without being exhausted or fatigued and, and feeling defeated. Cool. Well, thanks so much, both of you, for, for coming on the podcast. Where can people find out more about Tia and Nurks? And you can check more out about Tia Care and the Tia Clinic at AskTia.com. Cool. And we're at nurx.com and nurx.com. Awesome. Thank you so much.